everybody. Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I'm your host, Ashley Van Houten. Thank you so much for joining me today, as always. I hope you're as excited about today's guest as I was to chat with him. He probably doesn't need an introduction, but I'll give one to you anyway. Today's episode is with Stan Efferding. He is an IFBB professional bodybuilder, a world record holding power lifter. He's known as the world's strongest bodybuilder. Um, Because if you've been around here and listening to me for a little while or in this world, you know that looking strong doesn't necessarily mean you are strong and vice versa, Um, but he just happens to look crazy strong and also be that. He is one of only 10 men in the world to ever total over 2,300 pounds raw in powerlifting competition. So this guy is also very well respected as far as uh, sports and nutrition training. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes from all over the world in a range of different sports. And he also coined, you guys have probably heard of it, the vertical diet. It's sort of his approach to nutrition. And he just came out with a book that dives into it a little deeper called The Vertical Diet. Coincidentally, his publisher is the same as my publisher, uh, Victory Belt. So shout out to those guys. They know smart people when they see them. Uh, But anyway, so I haven't had a chance to actually sit down and pick Stan's brain before, so this was pretty exciting. It's a longer episode because I wanted to ask him a bunch of stuff, Um, and in this episode, we talk about everything from his daily routine to his upbringing and childhood and his family and how some of that stuff has impacted the way he um, lives his life today. We talk about his diet and his new book, some of his kind of key nutrition tips around things like fiber and protein, which people still have a lot of questions about, right? Because it's in some ways a lot more complex than we want it to be. Um, And he also talks about, and I really love this, practical tips for the rest of us normal people that can be gained from both the worlds of powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, I like to lump myself into the same category as Stan because I also competed in powerlifting and bodybuilding. So yeah, we're basically the same person. Um, You know, I have a little bit more hair on my head. He has a little bit more muscle, but basically the same. And I always like to talk about how there is so much that can be gained from these these sports and these um, professions and these athletes without having to be a professional bodybuilder, without having to eat exactly like that. There are some sort of overarching lessons or concepts that we can take maybe into our own lives to be um, just a little bit better uh, or, or just improve some of the things that we want to work on. So he also talks about his experience dealing with depression and anxiety, and he talks about working with elite athletes. Um, including some controversial ones who you will hear about in this podcast. So all that and a lot more. uh, It's a big one. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please, please, please rate and review this podcast. Please share it on social media. Share it with people who you think would benefit from this episode. That's literally the only way this thing can continue to exist is if you kind of just respond, just interact with it, right? Just tell me you like it um, and share it with others. It would mean a lot to me. All right, without further ado, here is my chat with the awesome Stan Efferding. All right, Stan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am so excited to pick your brain today. 
Thank you. Appreciate you having me. A lot of excitement on both of, in both of our worlds. Right yeah, yeah. Lots going on. Um, I have a ton of questions, but I kind of want to start like sort of high level and like and 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 drill down if we can. Um, but first of all, where in the world are you right now? I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico right now. I train okay. John Jones down here. This is where Jackson Link is in his uh, home base. So but I live in Las Vegas. It's only about an hour flight. So I pop out here. Uh, about every other week, I've got a, a, a partner that's uh, alternating with me that helps uh, keep John trained seven days a week. Cool. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you, actually, if I can, a fair bit about that, because I'm a huge MMA fan. And I sometimes feel I feel a little bit selfish with this podcast in general, because I get to have guests on that I just want to talk to and hope that other people get as much out of it as I do. Um, but sometimes I also have like topics and I'm like, I wonder if other people who listen to this are as into it as I am. But I mean, I love MMA, but I also just love like the inside look at elite athletes in general and the way they train and the team that they build around them and, and how they can get to be as good and high performing as they are. So I definitely want to ask you some questions about John. Um, but before we do that, can you talk to me, just walk me through, because this is something I think people love to have insight into to people like your lives, what your morning routine is like, like what time you get up in the morning, what you eat, when you work out, how you're, how you balance kind of your life and your work, just how it goes in the morning for you. Yeah, I'm pretty regimented, as people know. I always kind of accuse myself of being a bit OCD. And so uh, I'm, I'm up bright and early, usually uh, 6 a.m. in the morning. I got a 10 to 6 sleep schedule, and my chariot turns into a pumpkin at 10 p.m. Everybody knows that about me. I just, <laughs> I've been that way since college. I've always gotten up in the morning and trained. And so uh, I look at, at uh, making sure everything's done well the 24 hours prior to my training session, the eating, the sleeping and the hydration and all that other stuff. So yeah, I'll get up right and early in the morning and uh, I usually uh, eat right away. I've still consumed pretty significant amount of calories. I still train pretty hard and pretty consistently. And I'm kind of a skinny kid at heart and I, I need uh, an adequate amount of nutrition every day just to maintain my lean body mass and my workload. So uh, probably one of the first things I'll do in the morning is, is just eat as soon as I got to bed. Uh, and then uh, I've got an opportunity there before the kids get up. Uh, I've got a seven-year-old and nine-year-old. And so I try and take at least an hour to burn through a lot of my correspondence. I get a lot of DMs and emails, as, as you are familiar with, from people all over the world. And there's no time frame when, when it comes to different time uh, zones. And so I, I correspond with folks generally throughout the day. It's, I'm, I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to work off of my phone a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I dive right into that and try and clean out my inbox so I can be fresh for the day, get the kids ready for school, get my workout in. Uh, and then I come back and I've got a number of business ventures. Uh, some people are familiar with my uh, meal prep company, the Vertical Diet Meal Prep Company's uh, nationwide delivery service throughout the U.S., and my business partner and I, Dr. Uh, uh, um, I was going to say Dr. Damon McCune, he's the, he's the co-author of my book. Um, but uh, Dr. Derek Molesworth is my business partner for the meal prep company. And uh, so we'll, you know, we'll get to work on making sure that we've got a good, you know, consistent marketing, responding to clients and all our orders are fulfilled. And, and then my wife runs a, a pretty successful uh, business out of the home as well that she started She's been doing lives. She has a, a, a clothing company and she imports clothing from all over the world and, uh, and sells those on, on her, uh, on her website as well. And so 
she's running at the same time, running her business out of the home, uh, as we've done many times throughout the years. And so uh, we've uh, generally got our, our relatives coming in, our niece, uh, her sister, uh, two nieces, our son, our older son, who's 21 now. Uh, and we all just kind of co-op on all the things that need to be done every day. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a pinball machine throughout the house uh, until about three o'clock when we go pick the kids up. And then I'm pretty much focused on them uh, for most of that time. Now, every other week, I'll be down in Albuquerque working with John Jones personally. Uh, and then my, um, my trainer, a friend of mine that I brought in, will alternate weeks with me. So I'm home a week, gone a week, home a week, gone a week. Historically, I've traveled a lot every weekend, usually Friday through Sunday. Uh, I've done over 200 seminars in 12 countries in all 50 states in the last five years. And so, uh, you know, this, uh, although I'm gone for a full week, I typically was gone three days out of every week, uh, just flying out Friday, flying home Sunday, doing at least a seminar or two almost every weekend throughout the year. And so I still like to, to meet and greet my audience in person. I've always been a big fan of of personal training, about building those relationships, shaking hands, attending a lot of expos and a lot of seminars. And, uh, you know, the online stuff's neat and all, but I really like the face-to-face -face interaction still after all these years. I, it just, uh, I think it, it, it does well to hear people tell you their, uh, you know, their challenges, their personal stories, their questions, and to be able to answer those one-on-one. -on -one. And so uh, that pretty much sums up uh, the, the greater part of my day. We're writing another book, Vertical Kids, um, yeah, that's an exciting one. That'll probably be about a nine month project though. We, we just broke ground on it. Uh, we've got a great writer and, uh, obviously my co-author, Dr. Damon McCune, who's a registered dietitian and a PhD in exercise phys. We're collaborating on that one as well. Like we did on this uh, previous vertical diet book. Okay. That's exciting. Okay. There's a lot, there's a lot there that I want to touch on. First of all, I would love to have your wife on the podcast because she's amazing <laughs> and she's super inspirational too. Like what a badass woman she is. Um, so maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, I totally agree with you about the, just wanting that sort of in-person real life interaction again, because I consider myself like quite an introvert, but it doesn't mean that I don't like being around people. It means that I just, I want it to be meaningful and like real. And, um, I think in a lot of cases like useful too. So I loved those like yearly, like fitness and wellness expos and like meeting people. And I had like an event series that I was doing that was kind of ramping up right before the pandemic. That was really just like evenings where people who were into this stuff would get together and listen to smart people and, and interact and hang out for a bit because you're right. I mean, the ability for us to connect online in times when we can't meet in person is so valuable, um, but meeting in person is always better. So I'm glad that, you know, the world is, I think, hopefully slowly starting to go back to that. Um, and we'll continue as we move forward. But um, okay, so the book, we're going to talk about the book, among other things. People who follow you know about the vertical diet. It's been around, you, you know, you coined this some time ago. What what made you decide to kind of like really put pen to paper and turn it into a book now? Well, you're right. I've utilized all of these principles with my athletes for uh, better than a decade. Uh, it's really the culmination of everything I've learned throughout my career, which has been over 30 years competitively since 1986, uh, from studying exercise science at the University of Oregon, being a high school soccer coach, working with the University of Oregon track and football athletes in the early and mid 90s, um, and then just being a personal trainer, owning gyms, uh, working with professional athletes. 
um, my own competitive career, obviously, uh, my, my coaching and being coached by great, uh, you know, legends in the sport, of course, uh, and then collaborations with other um, athletes and coaches and academics. Uh, I've just started compiling everything that I thought my client, my single client would want uh, to implement in order to be successful. And it wasn't just diet, of course. Yep. It's, uh, you know, it's sleep, it's hydration, uh, weight loss and weight gain, of course, is part of it. Exercise, um, you know, blood testing uh, and kind of their individual needs, digestion, compliance with the diet became, you know, really important. Um, and so I started compiling all of this really just on my iPhone in my notepad as a way to copy and paste because I get some of the similar questions. A lot of the questions I get are pretty similar. And so I had taken some time to really do a deep dive, connect a lot of literature, uh, brief videos, articles, peer review, published research. And so they could, they could get a, a full understanding of what I wanted them to do without me having to, to rewrite it. And as the years progressed and I started adding more and more to this, I, I found it to be a pretty comprehensive document that I, I was then um, putting onto one sheet, uh, you know, one into one document, one uh, notepad that I would send to my clients. And it, it just grew and grew and grew. And um, eventually I decided it, it was a product unto itself that I wanted uh, because I, you know, as you, like we said, it's, you like to work with individuals, but as you build more and more of a customer base and want to get your message out to, uh, you know, greater volume of people, it's impossible to, uh, you know, to reach a broad audience yeah. uh, with the one-on-one -on -one interaction. And everybody is individual. And, and I do like, uh, you know, being able to talk to somebody one-on-one -on -one or having a client uh, at this stage, of course, it's usually um, someone at a, at a professional level. Uh, just because of my my time becomes very valuable and to be able to invest the kind of time I need into a single individual becomes pretty expensive. That's why doctors and registered dietitians have pretty poor compliance is because they're they're too expensive. Yeah. And personal trainers actually have great compliance because they're more affordable. You see them more frequently. And so I'm a huge fan of, of, uh, of the personal trainers on the front lines and their success rates. So I compiled the document and then you know, it would just be Stan Efferding's diet plan. Uh, I put a name on it. Uh, I, I uh, wanted it to be a commercial product. And um, I went about uh, promoting that. I think probably most notably was through Hofgård Bjornsson's uh, training and the seminar I did in Iceland with him, which was uh, over a two hour seminar that I put on YouTube, which really goes over the entire book. And uh, it got almost 7 million views. And my wife said to me, she said, why is anybody going to buy your book? You gave them everything for free on the internet. And just the opposite happened. You know, I had been giving out free information for years. Uh, but I know like myself, when I hear a really good podcast uh, with a lot of information at the end of the podcast, uh, I have to listen to it again with a yellow pad and, and, and <laughs> write things down. I like to have the reference, the resource, you know, and all the details and the checklists and things put in a hierarchy so I can, you know, I can start to knock them off. And so that's what I did. And, and it was largely successful and people re just redistributed it. Initially, I, I rolled it out as a as a PDF and uh, folks just emailed it to their friends yeah. <laughs> you know, without purchasing it. Yeah. Uh, which I didn't mind because I don't think I would have reached near the audience that I did. Um, if, if it hadn't been shareable because I, I, I was proud of the product and I, I didn't, and I, and I, 
I put a price tag on it that I thought was representative of my effort. Uh, not too many people sell eBooks for a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would spend, you know, over a hundred dollars to spend one hour with a really good experienced personal trainer. And I felt this was a compilation of hundreds, if not thousands of hours of, of, of work and advice and information. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, having said that, uh, we did have a lot, a lot of sales. And then I also got a lot of feedback. I mentioned I, I get, you know, over 100 DMs a day or emails or texts or WhatsApps or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they just keep flooding in. You, know, you yep. can't even keep track of them. And I started getting uh, a lot of additional questions. And I was responding and uh, people were telling me their experience. And so I took all of those and I compiled them and I added them to a version 2.0. And then a year later, the same thing. I had a whole bunch of new information. I created a version 3.0. And so the vertical diet kept evolving based on the science. And of course, I partnered with Dr. Damon McCune, as I mentioned, and we took a deep dive and made sure the information that we were providing was was accurate, was scientifically based, and it wasn't just my anecdotes or the, yeah. uh, the testimonials from my clients, which are valuable to me. But uh, you know, we had to make sure that we were uh, that we were consistent with the science as well. And so that evolved into you know a better and better product over time, which I kind of refer to as a living document now. So you don't just purchase the vertical diet; uh, you own something that that has uh, that I update, I respond to your questions. Um, you know, I refer in the diet, there's over 200 links to, as I mentioned, articles, videos, peer review research. So if you want to take a deeper dive and see some of the, uh, I started incorporating some of the best, uh, academic, I think, and athletic minds in the industry, all the names that you and I are both familiar with the, the, you know, the, uh, the Dr. Gabrielle Lyons of the world and the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Mike Israetels and the folks at Barbell Medicine and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Dr. Lane Norton and Dr. Jose Antonio from AISSN and Greg Knuckles stuff from Mass Research Review and Alan Aragon stuff from Alan Aragon's Research Review. Uh, I just started incorporating a lot of their uh, and crediting them, of course, for it and linking their uh, articles and videos so that people could really learn if they wanted to. Uh, comprehensively about all these different aspects, uh, not just nutrition, but of course, sleep with Dr. Matthew Walker and hydration with, uh, you know, lots of uh, Dr. Andy Galpin and, uh, you know, digestion, uh, but of course with Dr. Gabrielle Lyons is, uh, is a great resource for that. And I just started giving people uh, more opportunity to, uh, I think, get more information so they could specifically address their individual uh, issues. So, I don't know if I, if I, if I veered off in too many different directions. No, there, that's, that's great. <laughs> kind of how the, the vertical diet was born and, and how it's evolved uh, up until now where I've published the book and, and I'm now working on version 4.0, uh, which includes, uh, you know, a lot of information that um, that's more specific to competitive athletes, really blood testing, hormone optimization, um, PCOS, uh, you know, uh, blood pressure, blood sugar, high uric acid, uh, you know, uh, even uh, hormone or not hormone optimization, but uh, uh, fertility and libido, uh, all the things that I tend as I get into my 50s to get lots and lots of questions about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you touched on something there about like giving away all the information for free and saying like, well, who's going to buy it? And it actually had the opposite effect. And I think there it, it makes sense in a way because a lot of information and I'm not this isn't to downplay anything that's in the book because the book is fantastic and has a ton of resources, as you said. 
but it, it seems to be that a lot of times with um, health and nutrition information specifically, like we're not really reinventing the wheel here. Like a lot of times the information is out there. It's about putting it together in a way that is understandable and accessible um, and encouraging from someone who people trust like yourself that gets the message through, right? So while some of the stuff that you're saying may not be brand new and it can be, it's out there for free if people want it, if they're not hearing it and if they're not feeling, you know, compelled to try and, and experiment with themselves, then who cares if the information's out there for free, if they're not going to use it. Right. So mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, it's a testament to, you know, how long you've been doing this and how much people trust you that it's, that's, you know, where the compliance comes in. But that's my next question. Cause you, you mentioned the word compliance a couple of times and I'm reading your book and I'm thinking, and I love this. I say it on the podcast all the time. It makes me feel good when someone, you know, as influential as you is saying things that I'm also saying. Cause I'm like, see, look, another smart person who people like is saying this too. Like when you're talking about recovery and hydration and digestion and all that stuff. And the fact that the stuff takes longer than people want it to, you know, to optimize your health. And it's, you have to be in it for the long game. You have to be consistent. Um, but the biggest issue I feel like tends to be this compliance piece that people often will give up or fall off the wagon or do whatever, like right before they'd start to see the changes that would encourage them to keep going. Right. So you know, you talk about you work with a lot of elite athletes right now, and they there's probably a different approach and a different mindset for them than for the average person, you know, just trying to get healthier and fitter. So what words of wisdom do you have for us, whether we're just our, the average person trying to get healthier or a person coaching the average person? How do we get that compliance piece when we're really talking about like nuance and consistency rather than lose 20 pounds in two weeks and here's how you do it? Like, how do we get people to just buy in for the long haul? Yeah. You know, I started out my career as an athlete and training athletes, but as this thing evolved, the vast majority of my clients now are dad bods and soccer moms. Certainly as I've aged and people in their forties and fifties see the success mm -hmm. uh, that I've, uh, that I've been fortunate to have. Um, and working with athletes, you know, of course we wear that as a badge of honor and we brag about them, uh, but they're the easiest people to train because they're already driven. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're disciplined. They, they're consistent they're motivated. Their incentive uh, is very high too, right? Like if you're, you know, you've got millions of dollars on the line or you've got, you know, the average person, it, you know, losing five pounds may not be as enough of an incentive. They have access to more resources. That's yeah. they have the time and the resources. Uh, you're right. And the harder group to, to work with, of course, is going to be your, like you say, your average, your dad bought in soccer mom. But I believe they all have an athlete inside. These are people who, uh, you know, historically have probably done something at an athletic level, maybe in high school and have just kind of fallen away from it as way led on the way and, and life and kids and all those other things and sleep deprivation and work and, uh, and, you know, and highly palatable foods, uh, uh, it, it, it happens. And, you know, one of the things that I like to, to tell people, uh, is, is that all diets work when they're strictly adhered to, we see that six out of seven people that go on a diet lose weight. The vast majority of them do gain it back, certainly within three years. Uh, uh, it's kind of what I hate about this industry necessarily is that our, our success rate is poor. Mm. I should have become a chiropractor or a physical therapist. They have a 95% success rate because 
pain generally resolves itself spontaneously within four to six weeks. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could do just about anything, you know, put a copper bracelet on them or, you know, and, and they would, they would see some relief over time. Yeah. Uh, dieting is just the opposite. And uh, yeah. one of the things I'm cautious about is to, is to make sure that people understand that there's many paths to the same destination. And the goal is to find the one that works best for them. I've said this over five years ago in an obesity rant that I did about uh, my wife's uh, birth country of, of Samoa. I've been down there many times doing seminars and they have, of course, a, a very high obesity rate there. Um, and you don't want to discourage people from uh, from finding something. I say the best diet is the one you'll follow mm-hmm. and the best exercise is the one you'll do. And if you try and force yourself into any other uh, type of diet or exercise program, it, it's not going to be sustainable for the long term. It has to be a lifestyle. And uh, what's important about that is that a lot of folks will say, you know, keto is the way to go or intermittent fasting is the way to go. And you might even know SIBO buddy, somebody if they try it and don't succeed and think that that's the only way that, that they could be successful and it doesn't quote unquote work for them. They didn't enjoy it. They didn't stick to it. And so I propose that all of those are viable pathways if they work for you. Um, but then we look at, at success rates. We look at, at um, uh, the weight loss registry, which is the largest study of successful dieters. Over 10,000 dieters have lost 66 pounds and kept it off for at least five years. And I say that success leaves clues. What are these people doing? 98% of them went on a diet. Any diet, a plan is better than no plan. And so I propose a plan in the vertical diet, but I say it's not magic. It's not the only path. This is one I found that works for me, works for a lot of my clients. And here's the reasons why, Uh, because it addresses hunger and energy, which is two of the primary reasons why people fall off of diets is they get hungry and they get tired. And so uh, I try and introduce them to a path that works for them. Uh, and in doing so, they can be more compliant. And so we try and not demonize uh, a lot of foods. Most people will be like, well, don't eat red meat, don't eat fruit, don't eat dairy, don't eat salt. And you find a lot of those foods are huge for energy, uh, for micronutrients, uh, for palatability, you know, just for the foods that you might typically prefer as part of your diet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I try and design a diet that's something that people would most likely eat uh, anyway, and and then just start to address the key factors for weight loss. And here's the key factors. And we don't have a lot to work with. As you know, our toolkit is, has relatively few tools in it. You have to maintain a calorie deficit if you want to lose weight. It's an energy equation. Now that does address a lot of things. It addresses your basal metabolic rate. It addresses the thermic effect of food, your exercise activity, your non-exercise activity. Hormones is in there. It's, yep. it's in the energy balance equation. Uh, people would like to presume that we're just saying calories in, calories out, but we're not. It's all in there. It's all part of the, the, the same balanced equation. And so <clears throat> we have very few tools to work with. I think one of the big mistakes we make is we initially we over-restrict. We get them to make a significant change that's not consistent with what they prefer. And so our tools are as follows. One, probably the biggest one in terms of satiety and thermic effect of food is just is protein leveraging. Just eat more lean proteins. It's probably the, the biggest tool that we have. 
And it also just happens to be the best in terms of uh, providing us the micronutrients that we need. Um, and, and that is very important for energy, uh, especially for women. And I learned this in the late 80s, training bodybuilder figure physique bikini girls. I learned that when you restrict them with egg whites and tilapia and broccoli, not only do they have massive digestive issues, but it manifests in a, in a host of health problems, a, a choline deficiency, a biotin deficiency, their skin, hair, and nails start to dry out, a, a, a hypothyroidism, the hair starts to fall out, their energy uh, you know, is, is poor. Uh, we see anemia, amenorrhea. Um, we see uh, uh, you know, calcium problems, um, you know, bone mineral density decrease. We see all of that. And I dealt with a lot of athletes, runners, distance runners, sprinters. Uh, we would see that a lot in women who were both cutting weight and having a high impact. Uh, and they were getting a lot of shin splints and those kinds of mm. things. So I saw all those problems happening. I saw the, the, the rebounds from that, the, uh, the edema, the massive fat regain, uh, the depression, uh, those kinds of things, going to the doctor and having to get shots for iron B12 and vitamin D all the things that they should never have been deficient in if the diet wasn't, uh, you know, insufficient in those things. So um, you do have to maintain a calorie deficit, but one of the number one ways to do that is protein leveraging. Eat, you know, Dr. Gabriel Lyons talks about this nonstop. Eat 35% of your total calories in lean protein uh, of, your, uh, of your percentages every day. Uh, from there, there's kind of a, a bit of a battle going on between whether or not it's fiber or high satiety foods. Mm -hmm. uh, Alan Oregon just said recently and, and there, that the research on fiber is not uh, as, as uh, encouraging as we thought for satiety. It's great for fiber, but not necessarily for satiety. Mm -hmm. Maybe for uh, that individual meal, but not sustainable over the course of a number of hours, simply because of the stretching of the stomach and the signal that that sends to the brain that you're full. Uh, plus the length of time it takes to eat a big salad. And that seems, there seems to be a kind of a bit of a stopwatch between when you start eating and when your body starts uh, registering satiety. Yep. Uh, so I lead with protein and usually second to that, I, I go to high satiety foods, which there is a satiety index, uh, uh, things like boiled potatoes and oranges. Um, and then I'm on to, to fiber salads, uh, those kinds of things, just so that you can get enough food bulk to feel satiated and then uh, not be hungry as quickly uh, mm -hmm. thereafter. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some evidence that, that some degree of, of uh, uh, walking, daily steps, daily activity provides a satiety benefit. And we usually think of that as exercise and calorie burning energy expenditure, uh, where in fact there is some satiety benefit to getting around 6,000 plus steps a day. There's also uh, a problem with compensation from overtraining. Yeah. So a lot of people think they need to go out and start pounding the pavement and do five mile jogs every day. Yeah. And what they find out is, and what we're seeing in the literature is that compensation takes over. This is be true of the, the soccer mom who joins the CrossFit class and goes in and gets crushed for an hour. And she comes home and she sits more and eats more as a result. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm very cautious of. So not only do I not want to be too restrictive in the dieting, but I don't want to have too much excess in the exercise. I'm very cautious about that, particularly the calorie deficit, yeah. because you're not recovering as fast. Uh, you maybe if you're a beginner and untrained, you can build some muscle, but it's not the optimal environment mm -hmm. for that in a calorie deficit. Um, 
And so I do include uh, the 10 minute walks. I try and position those after meals, both because it's, it's an easy habit. It's, it's sustainable. Nobody enjoys driving to the gym and doing 40 minutes on the treadmill. Uh, they won't do it for any extended period of time. And we find that it, it's not as effective as we had once hoped that your body down regulates the number of calories that you burn and it compensates by making you hungrier and lazier. If I can yeah. use that word later, because we know that the non-exercise activity thermogenesis burns much more calories uh, than the exercise activity. So that one hour you put in the gym may decrease uh, your, your, your non-exercise activity, you're just the, the amount of time that you spent on your feet, walking around, doing things throughout the day. Uh, and you have a net negative in terms of energy expenditure. So I try and, and create an environment that, that isn't, uh, that allows them to do things that are, that are consistent and not overly taxing. Uh, because once you start putting them on these hard programs, and I know a lot of people will join these, um, uh, these boot camps and they'll go in and they'll do the battle ropes and they'll be running all around and come over here and they'll be blowing the whistle and go, 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 go. And if you breathe heavy and sweat a lot, you think you've got a great workout. It doesn't seem to translate into actual fat loss that people end up being very discouraged, very tired, uh, very hungry uh, over time. And I don't think it's the right stimulus for muscle for gaining muscle, for hypertrophy, all that zipping around and, and no real deliberate investment into uh, weightlifting the mm -hmm. proper way, as we know, the scientific methods for weightlifting to actually build muscle tissue, which can provide you, uh, you know, a, a benefit for your BMI uh, and insulin sensitivity. Uh, those kinds of things can be very valuable. So I, I threw a lot out there, but really it, it came down to three items, the protein leveraging, high satiety foods, maybe some fiber and don't overexercise. Mm -hmm. and, and, and after that, I'm, I'm down to compliance and encouragement and support, uh, you know, psychological support to teamwork, um, things like meal prepping, uh, you know, that we know that those things work, getting a coach or a training partner, those kinds of things have a, a much greater impact long-term uh, than, than uh, all of these, uh, uh, you know, keto or intermittent fasting quick fixes. Quick fixes. Yeah. I'm so glad that you have said all of this because this is stuff that people need to hear from somebody who's, I think, reached your level of success, but also, um, again, sort of um, authenticity in this environment, because it's something that I come up against all the time, working largely with women, but also um, sort of the, the group that you touched on, maybe women in their 40s and 50s who were doing some of that, just like beating themselves up and their reaction to feeling either plateaus or their backsliding or their hormones are messed up or all kinds of things are messed up is to just keep hitting it harder. And I used to kind of joke and say that this was like a young dude problem. Like I wanted to ask you, you know, you undoubtedly, I know, have a large audience of young men that are just full of energy and want to get huge and want to get strong and want to like just, you know, whatever, tear the ass out of it. Right. And so they may 
hear some of the things you're saying about prioritizing recovery and not overtraining and be like, that's not really for me. Like I'll deal with that when I'm old. Right. But I deal with women who are again, maybe premenopausal, maybe in menopause that are doing the exact same thing that are doing CrossFit workouts for 90 minutes a day and not eating any protein and wondering why they still are holding on to some fat. How could I be holding on to fat when I'm eating 1200 calories a day and I'm working out like crazy, right? And it's just people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that you should eat more and work less and and recover more, you know? So how do we get it through to people? How? Is it just that you just continue to keep putting it out there and like live by example? Like do do people have to burn out first before they hear that? Before they really hear it? I wish they wouldn't because that that's when we usually get them and we have to fix that problem first before we can start on a sensible weight loss program. We have to fix the, the sarcopenia, all the, the muscle loss. We have to fix the, like you said, the, the, the hormone problems, the thyroid suppression, the anemia. Uh, and that takes a while without any weight loss on the scale. Yeah. And that's very frustrating. We also has to, there has to be some education. I put some really good before and after pictures in one of my wife included uh, where she was almost the same weight, but had a completely, uh, uh, a complete change in her physique, smaller waist, uh, leaner, uh, physique look, you know, to her because muscles, I, I have any other, other way to say it, but heavier than fat, you know, but it's smaller. And so you can, you can not budge the scale, but watch your waist measurement go down inches uh, while you're in building muscle and the muscle allows you to be more insulin sensitive. So you don't suffer from, uh, these, uh, hunger cravings that you may historically have, uh, and you burn more calories, uh, when you're active, it's not huge. And it's said when you're sitting, uh, you know, having more muscle only burns, I think it's like six calories an hour or more than, uh, less muscle, uh, when it's, when you're sedentary, but when you get up and move, you burn significantly more calories utilizing that muscle. So that's one of the big things. And, and the insulin sensitivity is important, as you know, mainly for the driving for, for hunger. When somebody experiences uh, a hypoglycemic event, they'll polish off anything in front of them. And I've experienced that as an athlete and even as a kid, because I was a skinny kid who ate crappy sugar food because I worked at 7-Eleven and my diet you know, consisted of of soda pops and candy. Yeah. Yes. Slurpees was my go-to. Um, I would get hypoglycemia and I didn't even realize it. I would just get dizzy and I didn't know what was going on and my body would feel numb. And, and, you know, while I was playing basketball with my friends and I had no idea, you know, and I would be voraciously hungry and I'm going to eat more sugar. Um, so I get it. And I should say this because people see me and they're like, Oh, this is fit guy who's just been muscular all his life. I was hundred, I was 98 pounds. And as a freshman and sophomore in high school, I wrestled as 98 pounds, 106 as a junior, 115 as a senior. Uh, I was only 135 pounds as a freshman in college. Uh, I suffered from uh, delayed onset puberty because I under ate and underslept, or I ate mostly sugar and underslept. I worked until almost midnight every night and came home and watched Welcome Back Cotter at one o'clock in the morning and got like five or six hours of sleep. And then I was off to eating crap all day long. You know, I was, it was again, working at 7-Eleven. Um, I have gained and lost throughout my career, and I'm a hard gainer, uh, well over a thousand pounds because I, I power lifted. So I bulk up to 285, 290. And that course took me many, many years from when I initially started 
Uh, and then I would diet down to 4% body fat to compete as a professional bodybuilder on stage. I've experienced all of these feelings at, at an extreme level, uh, an unhealthy level. I've often said that if you want to be healthy, don't compete. That um, you know, There's a difference between health and fitness, fitness being the ability to perform a particular duty or task. And the fitness level required to be a world's strongest man or even a 14-year-old gymnast at the Olympics or a 10-year-old badminton player in China isn't healthy. Those people blow out, you know, knee ligaments and tendons and, and have surgeries. And of course, the all the problems with the heavy athletes that they get from metabolic syndrome and high blood pressure and blood sugars and fatty liver disease, et cetera. And then the dieters, as we mentioned earlier, suffering from, uh, you know, brain fog and, and low hormones and uh, the female triad. Uh, I've been there uh, many, many, many times because I competed. I, I, I did it to myself throughout my career. And so I feel as though I'm, I'm very empathetic with what it feels like uh, to sit, to lay down at night and just dream about food. I've been there many times. And to have those physiological hanger pains from hypoglycemia where, uh, you know, one donut isn't going to satisfy it. You're going to pound down the entire box. I've been there. I've done it many times. I competed for 30 years. I know what it's like to be seven, six, five percent body fat and just walk around hungry all day long. And also to be over fat because I got up to over 300 pounds many times throughout my career. I did blood tests on a monthly basis for over 14 years later in my career. I've had hundreds of blood tests done and I watched these things happen. But from the time I was dieting, the time I was bulking and I saw the, you know, all of the things that happened, the fatty liver, the, the elevated liver enzymes, the blood sugar resistance, the HA1C elevation. Uh, you know, I, I've seen all of it, the blood pressure fluctuations. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, very empathetic. And I, I think that the recommendations I make uh, aren't arrogant or insensitive because I've been there. And so I'm cautious when I make recommendations that they are sustainable. They appreciate uh, people's individual circumstances, mm -hmm. and not just uh, hunger because they're hungry, but hunger, hunger because they're bored, hunger because they're stressed, hunger because uh, there was some traumatic uh, events in their lives. Uh, I've, I've been through all of that. Uh, I've talked about my stress for success video on, uh, on YouTube, on my rhinos rants where, you know, I've lived through anxiety, uh, depression at times, a lot of stress that, that I realize leads to these behaviors that are, are, aren't uh, uh, easily managed. I, I always say dieting is simple, but it's not easy. All right. I'm interrupting the podcast, but it's for a good reason. I'm talking about snacks, guys. Okay. Very important topic, a uh, topic that is near and dear to my heart because no matter how strict or healthy or crazy I get with my diet. I like to eat and I like snacks and I like treats that are healthy, that make me feel good, that don't make me feel like crap, but also I know are giving me nutrition and don't taste like I'm settling for something healthy. So all that to say, I'm very excited that we have yet another new partner for the show. This is a company that I've actually been a fan of for a really long time, um, but just recently connected with and learned a bit more about how they do things, um, how high quality and next level their products actually are. Um, I was always impressed with them, but even more so now that I've had time to chat with the founder 
Autumn Smith, co-founder of Paleo Valley. Um, They make a number of supplements, which I can talk about at a later date. You can go check everything out at paleovalley.com. But I'm talking today about their superfood bars and their 100% grass-fed fermented beef sticks. They're so delicious. They come in a bunch of flavors. Um, I've been eating the beef sticks and their chocolate, I think double chocolate superfood bars, um, dark chocolate chip, that's right. Uh, every day um, because they sent them to me and I'm thinking, okay, these are grass-fed bone broth protein. They've got a ton of superfoods, including things like greens and broccoli and like greens powders, kale, stuff like that, which normally I'd be like, yeah, that's not really for me. I just give me the protein and the meat and the chocolate. Um, But these bars are really good. They taste like food. They don't taste like a lot of the um, sort of healthy or low carb or keto bars out there that are just full of like lab created sugars and chemicals. Um, They've got a ton of health benefits, blueberries, turmeric, ginger, Himalayan uh, salt, pumpkin seeds, and then of course chocolate. Um, So they've got protein, they're pretty low carb, decent amount of fat, they're just delicious. Um, Gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, all of that, low in sugar. Um, So they're delicious. And if you are somebody like me who wants to eat chocolate from time to time, who likes a protein bar when they, you know, go out for the day and want to have a snack, this is absolutely the kind of product that I think would be great for you. Um, so check them out, go to paleovalley.com. I have a discount code. It's MMR. So that's muscle Maven radio MMR for 15% off. Um, they're just awesome treats to have around snacks to have on the go. If you're a outdoorsy person, if you, you know, don't want to wait to, get home and make your own food or go to the gas station and get whatever nightmare they have there. This is the kind of smart snacking that you want to do. So I'm super impressed with this company. I will continue to tell you more about them and what they offer um, as we move forward, but just kind of wanted to put this note um, out there. If you're a snacker like me, this is kind of one of the best ways you can, you can do it. So go check out Paleo Valley. I appreciate that they are partnering with me and supporting the show, paleovalley.com, code MMR, get on it, dark chocolate chip superfood bar. So good. All right. Now back to the show. Nope. Yeah. So I've got, I've got lots of questions for you. Okay. So you're, I know a lot of people listening, you are absolutely speaking their language and speaking to them and myself included, because I also have a background in competitive bodybuilding and uh, I did some figure competing for a while and, and powerlifting, obviously not nearly to the level that you did, but I, I feel like you have an interesting perspective having been so successful on both sides and seeing sort of behind the scenes, the, um, the dysfunctional aspects of both of those sports, as well as some of the sort of incredible things about those sports. Cause I like to talk about how, you know, people, people do, especially bodybuilding because of the aesthetic aspect of this sport, right. That it's sort of inherently, um, unhealthy, dysfunctional, attracting people with dysfunctional attitudes towards their bodies and food. And like, you know, you could make that argument. Absolutely. But you could, you could also make the argument, like you said, that pretty much any competitive sport and elite 
uh, athlete, you take their blood work, they're not going to be the healthiest people around. They may look great and be performing great. Doesn't necessarily mean they're fit or healthy. Um, but you, you're known for being really strong and also a bodybuilder. So if we can switch just, I guess this could be about nutrition too, but also training. I just would love to hear, um, what you think, again, the average person. So the average person who wants to work out and be fit and be strong and chase goals, but has a full-time job and kids and isn't competing. What can they take from either of those sports and from watching someone like you, what can we take? What are some like overarching training, um, advice or nutrition advice that we can take from those sports, um, that can help us when we go to the gym and we're trying to, you know, get stronger, improve our bench press, be fit, look good. What are some of the good things we can take from those sports? Yeah. I'm going to circle back and mention one thing, like you said about competitive working with competitors, it used to be isolated to that industry, bodybuilding, figure, physique, right. bikini, all of these problems, all of these restrict over restrictive diets, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, with the advent of social media, uh, that industry exploded. And then the soccer moms started seeing these women on uh, Facebook and, and Instagram in the best shape of their life, but had mm -hmm. no idea behind the scenes what was really going on. All the things mm -hmm. we just talked about with the female triad and uh, all of that and the depression and, and the, the rebounds. Also, they tend to compare themselves to yes. people on the Internet which is like one-tenth of one percent of the physiques out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so their expectations are a little bit high. And also, uh, if they don't get these linear results over time, not realizing it's, a, it's an ebb and flow, uh, you, you, know, it's, it, you, don't, you don't just keep losing weight. There's time periods at which there's maintenance and maybe even some regression. And, uh, and it's hard to battle through those moments. So I just wanted to make sure that... that that everyone understood that the reason why this is even more important now, and it's not specific to the fitness industry is because so many soccer moms and, and, and dad bods have adopted those same diet and exercise plans. Yes. Uh, and they don't realize all the problems that they're causing. Uh, I'm behind the scenes in that industry. I get it. So, yeah. so to move on, uh, I did a rant called stress for success. where I talked about on two different occasions when I was running a business uh, for a startup business for someone else. And when I started my own business, uh, that I was working 16, 18 hours a day and, and I was not taking care of my health. I was eating, I was broke. I was eating dollar meals at McDonald's for breakfast and lunch. And I was, um, uh, I was not exercising. I didn't, I didn't even have a gym membership for nearly a year at one of these points, which sounds, uh, you know, obviously strange for someone like me who's trained his whole life. Uh, but I was, I devoted everything. I put everything into the uh, the development of, of these businesses. And it had a very dramatic effect on my health. I lost a lot of weight, lost a lot of muscle, lost a lot of energy. My sleep was suffering, uh, suffered from depression during those times, just overworked. And I happened into a, a Barnes and Noble one afternoon and I uh, came across, I was just really wanted to read a book about stress because I was getting my ass kicked. Mm. And I found a book called Stress for Success by Jim Lohr. Uh, and the entire book, was about maintaining these foundational uh, behaviors, sleeping a little better, exercising regularly, and eating a little better. And it, it just, I mean, it's exactly how I had conducted myself uh, up until the point that, you know, I experienced this depression. And so I just committed to getting seven plus hours of sleep. That was number one. I call it paying yourself first. You're not gonna be a benefit to you or to anybody else in this world if, you, if you're not healthy. 
Uh, it talked about the fact that, that stress was like a weight. This is why it, it, it talked to me so well. You know, if you bench 200 pounds and you put 300 on the bar and ask for a lift off, it's going to crush you. And that's what stress is. Stress is the 300 pounds. But if you're healthy and strong and you can bench 400 pounds, then you're doing 300 for reps all day long. You can't avoid stress. You, you have to experience and engage and, and overcome stress because you can't be successful without it. Mm -hmm. uh, the more stress you avoid, the, 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 the worse you're going to be off in terms of your earnings potential, in terms of uh, your relationships, resilience, everything. your resilience yeah. too. I mean, you need to have some stress in your life or else you're never going to be able to deal with anything that comes your way. Right. All of that. And I was trying to look for, for ways to reduce stress. And he's like, no, look for ways to increase your strength, your ability to deal, to cope with the stress coping mechanisms. And first and foremost, it was health. And so I just started walking. I started sleeping seven plus hours and I joined the gym and I went back and I started lifting some weights. I was really busy at the time, obviously. Uh, and, and I did it to myself again, a number of years later, when I started my own business had the same experience you know, we, we never learned the first time around. Uh, and I, I knew right away what to do when I started to feel that way again, when I started having anxiety attacks in the middle of the night, waking up and, uh, you know, in a pool of sweat, uh, and, and those kinds of things. Uh, my mom was a, an addict all her life. Uh, she was an alcoholic from, uh, from the time I was born and, uh, that evolved into painkillers and then eventually psychiatric medications, which just completely wiped her out. She was in and out of mental institutions and, and the like. And I never understood her. I always blamed her. I always was angry and mad at her for, for the way that she conducted herself. And, um, until I had that first panic attack. Hmm. Yeah, so my mom suffered from, she suffered from panic attacks and anxiety and, and, um, uh, I never understood it. And when I had that first panic attack, I was like, Oh, I get it. I even went to my college counselor and, and after I got my psychology degree at university of Oregon and I said, Hey, I want to get an MSW a master's of social work. Cause I want to help people who are, you know, drug addicted, et cetera. And she says, you ever been a drug addict? And I'm like, no, I like, well, I'm going to help my mom. You know, she suffers from depression. You ever been depressed? I'm like, no, she, Maybe you should find something that, that you're good at, that you're interested in. So I entered the exercise science program, which turned out to be great. You know, that's, you know, that's been my career, but I never understood that until that moment, until I had the panic attack, the anxiety attack. And, uh, and then I, I started to try and do something about it. Uh, I did not go on medications because of my mom's situation. I, I knew that that was something I, I a road I wouldn't go down. So, um, uh, <laughs> That's why I endeavored to, to use those lifestyle mechanisms. And it worked. It worked brilliantly. Joe Rogan said on his podcast once, I don't know anybody who exercises hard that, that's depressed. And, and that's, I mean, that's a stretch. But uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And I've experienced that with people that I've, I've interacted with over the course of my career who has said when, when they did those three things, when they paid themselves first, when they uh, got their seven plus hours of sleep, when they regularly uh, exercised daily and they started to eat better, uh, they had a dramatic effect on their mood and their performance and, and their outlook and all of those things. And so that was, that's probably the biggest thing that uh, the biggest recommendation that I make for busy people is, is please do not let those that your foundation go by. Now, how do I squeeze that into a busy schedule? Because like I said, I was running two companies. I've got, you know, two kids. Uh, don't, don't assume that you have to do too much. I think we set ourselves up for failure by, by designing a, the perfect program. Uh, don't let uh, you know, the perfect be the enemy of the good. There's, 
you can get an you can get results, amazing results from 20 or 30 minutes twice a week. Mm-hmm. And between the 10 minute walks and a little bit of resistance training, that's all the exercise you need to do. Yeah. That that accomplishes you know all the recommendations from the American Heart Association uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know exercise the weekly exercise. I think they only recommend 140 minutes. Uh, three 10 minute walks a day is 210 minutes. And, you know, they're easy to do. They're regenerative. You know, you always feel like your battery got recharged. You come back and you're, uh, you know, a lot of what you feel is physical stress is really psychological. Um, It's just from, from having to make all the decisions that you make and doing all the things that you really don't want to do, but need to do that day. It weighs heavy psychologically and you feel physical stress for it. Uh, But really it's just because you need to, uh, you need to refocus your attention onto something you enjoy. Um, so, uh, the ways I do it when I'm busy, here's the big, here's the big rocks when I'm really busy. Uh, I have to get seven hours of sleep. And the only way to do that is to put the phone away. It, it really is. People sit up at night and start, and next thing you know, it's midnight and you got to be up at 6am. You have to put the phone away hour before bed. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You've done plenty of talks on sleep, cool room, quiet room, dark room, blue light, um, you know, getting rid of, uh, you know, like the dog or the cat sleeping in the bed, waking you up and you're, you're, you're experiencing now the, uh, the newborn mm-hmm. uh, and, and every time I do a seminar, I'll have a woman in the back. She's like, what about me? <laughs> me. And, I, yeah. and I do a video called why I'm a hypocrite because, uh, you know, most of the time I was competing at a high level, I did not have kids yet. Uh, and so I was able to, to do those things. But isn't it also just to interrupt, like, it, you know, when you were talking to somebody like me or like somebody who has a newborn where it look, I may not get seven and a half hours in a night because I have a six week old or whatever. But that's yeah. where it goes back to. There's more than one pillar. They're all very important. They're all foundational. But when there's yeah. one that you have a limited amount of control over, you just have to maximize these other ones. Like You just have to double down on knowing that if you're getting less sleep, you may be inclined to eat more sugar. You may be inclined to eat more carbs or do have more caffeine. So you need to like double down on the, the things you do have control over to try to balance the scales a bit. Right. You're right. Sleep yeah. deprivation uh, does increase ghrelin, which increases hunger. It does uh, increase insulin resistance. It, uh, it, it's, it's a difficult uh, uh, road when you're starting to lose sleep. You're more satiated when you sleep longer and you have better insulin sensitivity, more energy when you sleep yeah. longer. So it's a challenge. I would say to couples, <clears throat> a lot of times, and I made this, did this as well. If my wife was up, I was up. Yeah. So I didn't want her to have to burden uh, that by herself. And so eventually we just started talking about, well, let's alternate. And then you go one night, I'll go one night. It, it, that kind of halves the deficit. Mm-hmm. And then if, if you have the resources, then maybe even on a Sunday, you get an, uh, a night nanny. So then you're getting four nights of sleep a week each, maybe with a, a 20 minute nap in the afternoon, if it allows for itself, that's a, that's a pretty sustainable uh, program uh, mm-hmm. to do. So, and again, not for everybody. Yeah. Uh, the hope is that you would just try and optimize that as much as you can. I get this from a lot of nurses and doctors as well, mm-hmm. who, who tell me that, that they work those 24 hour shifts and, and uh, it's so hard to manage even night shifts, because as mm-hmm. you know, the pain rhythms and, uh, will have a huge effect on hunger. So I'm not over here preaching. I'm just saying that, that these are the pillars. And like you said, you do everything you can to optimize them uh, within your control and that yeah. of your lifestyle and your employment. 
so that's the sleep component, the 10 minute walks after meals. And I've been doing those for 10 years. I'll go to dinner at a restaurant and I'll leave and I'll set my timer for five minutes and walk down the street and then turn around and walk back and then get in my car. I've been doing 30 minutes of cardio a day mm-hmm. uh, for 10 years and I'm a big meat neck, you know, and I, and it, it's just so easy to do. You would never catch me on a treadmill for 30 or 40 minutes. It's mm-hmm. just mind numbingly boring, not terribly effective, unsustainable. I would never assign that to any of my clients and never have. I trained Nadia Wyatt who took third place in the Miss Olympia. She did three 10 minute walks a day. It was all the cardio that she did leading up to the Olympia. We used calorie restriction and she ate steak all the way up to the Olympia. She went from a New York to a top sirloin, which is just a little lower in fat, to a sirloin tip or a top round, and then to a grass fed. All we did was reduce the fat content, but she maintained the steak consumption all the way up. She ate egg yolks. She just started supplementing a little more egg whites as we progressed to keep the fats down. And I'm not saying fats are bad. I'm saying as a a competitive bodybuilder, that was one of the things we wanted to control because I I wanted to keep carbs in because she did lift twice a day Mm -hmm. and I needed to fuel those workouts because as soon as she started to lose performance and strength, she would start to lose muscle. And that was the primary uh, thing that we were trying to to hold on to. So just an aside, but this isn't just about men. I work with Stephanie Sanzo, who's a a really popular fitness influencer out of Australia. She suffered all the same uh, problems, uh, before she started reincorporating things like an egg yolk, things like red meat, things like dairy. Um, and when I say dairy, I usually am referring to like a Greek yogurt because it's mm-hmm. uh, lower lactose and has additional enzymes and probiotics to help you digest the lactose. So, uh, most people aren't, uh, lactose intolerant, uh, or lac- don't have a lactose allergy. They just have some degree of intolerance yep. and so if you use smaller amounts or smaller servings, uh, and then a, a lower lactose product, I can still get the calcium in, which is important, not just for bones, but for nerve signaling and muscle contraction. So I do have that in the diet and probiotics that, that continue to show um, some benefit for digestion uh, from fermented sources, not necessarily from supplementation. Right. Uh, food sources first is, yep. is what we're looking at. Um, so I get the seven plus hours of sleep. I take the 10 minute walks and now the workouts Less than 30 minutes twice a week is more than sufficient from, from uh, all the research that you're seeing from Brad Schoenfeld and Brett Contreras. And uh, they're saying that if you can just get 10 sets per body part per week, so you go in and do uh, a set of dips followed by a set of chin-ups, you do that five times, that's your upper body workout. Mm-hmm. Dips are getting chest, shoulders, and tries. Chin-ups are getting back and buys. That's your upper body workout. Your lower body workout, you can just go in and do some air squats with a, uh, you know, maybe some front squats with a dumbbell um, and some, some Nordic curls or something, uh, whatever to work your hamstrings. Same thing. Five sets each. You can finish that entire workout. And the reason I alternate the dip and the chin up is because hypertrophy science suggests that you want at least a 90 second rest, ideally two minutes between the chest exercises. Mm-hmm. So I don't chest rest 60 seconds, do a dip, rest 60 seconds, do a dip. Because then now you're more about muscular endurance and not hypertrophy. And I'm really kind of focused on hypertrophy Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm talking about weight training. I want to get a return on that investment. It's not exercise, it's training. It's very specific. And I want to actually build muscle uh, uh, with that time that I'm investing. And so that that is how I I trained many times uh, throughout my career, not when I was competing, but uh, over the last six plus years that I haven't been competing, 
Uh, I still train quite similarly to that when I'm really busy. Uh, obviously more now that I'm training with my clients, but uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's more than sufficient. If you do more, again, you might end up uh, being worse off because of compensation. I think people might have a hard time hearing that, especially especially people who do find gym like their therapy and they want to be there for an hour every day. Um, but I think the biggest thing that we need to that we're missing with the working out part, and it's something I talk about a lot um, with any people that I'm coaching is it's about the intention and the intensity while you're there doing these short workouts, because so many people, and you know, I'm not judging, I I'm guilty of it too, but when you kind of do your workouts on autopilot and you're like checking your phone in between every set and like, that's when people can spend an hour, six days a week in the gym, because they're really kind of half-assing it, honestly, like you can go through, especially when you've been doing it for decades, you can go in there and kind of just go through the motions, but you could also go in there and spend a half an hour and beast yourself, even if you're an elite athlete, especially if you're an elite athlete, because it's the intensity and focus you're putting into every second of every rep and every minute and all of the energy in your brain is focused on your muscles instead of just kind of like looking around, seeing what other people are doing and I'm checking my phone. You know what I mean? So I think that that's a part that's really hard for people to get their heads around. But if you actually put the work in while you're there, you don't have to work as much. It's a smarter versus harder thing, right? Yeah. And let's, let's put that in a little bit of a hierarchy. Number one on the list is what you first mentioned. The best exercise is the one you'll do. I would never discourage somebody from going to a yoga class or whatever their preference was, because that is exercise. And if it's something they enjoy, they're more likely to do it consistently. And that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I enjoy lifting weights. I can't presume that everybody does. I do think there needs to be some resistance components, especially for women. We talked earlier about uh, the fact that muscle is a sink for glucose and that you really want to train those muscles to be in control of your insulin sensitivity. Uh, but it's also really important because as we age, we suffer from uh, muscle loss, sarcopenia, mm -hmm. uh, and also bone mineral density loss. You can't maintain bone mineral density just by taking calcium. It doesn't work that way. You, there has to be some stimulus, just like with the muscles. Your bones are the same. There has to be some stimulus that notifies them to continue to maintain their density. And that would be ideally some sort of axial loading for women as they age in particular, because they, uh, they tend to get uh, some of the rounded back and loss mm -hmm. of bone density in their spine. And so axial loading would be anything like even just picking up uh, a couple of heavy dumbbells or something and just standing there. Mm -hmm. My father's 90 years old. He lives with me. And I have a little gym in my garage. And so I went out and I set the, the racks, the uh, support bars up really high. And I put a bar across it. And he just reaches down about two inches and grabs it and stands up with it. Yeah. It's like a little deadlift. It's like an elevated deadlift. And I just have him just hold that there for 15 seconds and then set it down or do a number of repetitions. That's fine. That creates enough compression axial loading. You could do it with squatting. You can do it with deadlifting. It creates just enough compression on his spine that it, it, uh, it stimulates, you know, an ongoing, uh, uh, uh bone mineral maintenance or bone maintenance. Mm -hmm. And so he's been doing that for some time. I have a little Reebok step in his room and he'll, he'll just go over and grab the railing and he'll step up on a little short Reebok step for his legs. I got him one of those recliner chairs that, that you can adjust up. Yep. And he adjusts it all the way up and then he'll stand up 
and sit down and stand up and sit down. So he does little unweighted squats, like body weight squats, but from an elevated position because he's 90. Uh, but there, there are ways to progress any exercise to get for any age individual at any health level. Um, you know, the name barbell medicine speaks for itself. <laughs> they prescribe weightlifting to their patients uh, at any age and at any uh, degree of health. They just find some way to get them moving with some sort of resistance training, not just for, for bones and muscles, but also for insulin sensitivity, uh, which is, I, I think, why I keep encouraging folks to find whatever exercise they enjoy, they'll do consistently that can incorporate some resistance, some loading. Yes. And it could just be bands. My dad has these little bands that he just presses up overhead like this in his room. I got him a little light red uh, bands. Mm-hmm. That's enough yeah. with consistency. You need to do it probably twice a week, which is why I encourage the, the full body Monday, full body Friday in my previous example, as far as dips and chins and then some squats and hamstring curls. And you're done. That's a fantastic workout. It can take less than 30 minutes. If you want to do more, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. I love yeah. it. And I think, you know, one of the things we learn as we get older and wiser too, is that the the weight really, of course, powerlifting and being strong and lifting a bunch of weight is awesome and it's great and it's impressive, but the amount of weight you're lifting matters less than your ability to contract your muscle and find that tension and that mind muscle connection. So you can get, I, I could get a better workout with a band than somebody next to me, you know, just throwing weights around like a dummy, right? Because if they're not, if you're not reusing your muscles properly, you're not going to get the same impact. Um, Okay. So I want to be cognizant of your time and I don't, you know, I know you've got things to do and I really do want to ask you a couple quick questions about, uh, John Jones, but first I just want to, I want to mention one thing that you talked about earlier, because I think it's really important. And so I just want to come back to it and just acknowledge it because, um, I really do think it's an important thing that you touched on. And that is, um, talking about mental health and sort of understanding where people are coming from in retrospect, when you have that experience yourself. And I think it's important to note that oftentimes um, people's dysfunctional behaviors, or we see them as dysfunctional, whether it's addictive behaviors, addiction to drugs or alcohol, or working out or being obsessed with their food. If you don't understand it, you can, you can be really judgmental and not really understand where, why people are behaving the way they're behaving. And when we understand and have empathy for the fact that 99% of the time, these dysfunctional behaviors are coping mechanisms. They're they're people trying to figure out how they can cope with their life. And when you think about it that way, you can have a lot more empathy and also understanding. And in some cases, well, compassion and respect for the person who's just trying to figure out a way to, to get through it. Right. And oftentimes people who are working out all day long and beating themselves up or being obsessive with the way they eat, that can sometimes be a coping mechanism for something else. And I think that if you're a coach, having understanding and empathy for that is really important, but even more so the people who are listening to this, if you are resonating with that, having compassion for yourself and having some patience for yourself that, you know, instead of just beating yourself up and saying, well, why can't I just 
listen to what other people are telling me or why can't I just work out properly or why can't I just eat a cookie sometimes and not lose my mind? You know, just understanding that there's a lot of layers and a lot of complexity and a lot of psychology to this. Um, and so having some of that compassion and empathy for yourself um, will help you maybe get to a point where you can approach this stuff in a more um, relaxed way in a way that's more sustainable and better for your health. So anyway, I just wanted to like go back and touch on that again, because I think it's really important what you said. Um, a lot of people online and we're seeing other people's perfect highlight reels of their life. And we don't, um, have a lot of compassion and nuance for how this stuff works. Um, yeah. so anyway, and I want to say at, at the conclusion of that, let's normalize therapy, mm -hmm. see a professional help that can help you talk through these things. I could easily say to you, hey, it helps to have a goal, and it does, and then a path to get there, uh, and, to, and to, to have a, some sort of tracking. Tracking is very successful for some people. Uh, but just airing that out with somebody who's there to listen to you, uh, you should normalize that. Pick up the phone, call somebody, go have an appointment, sit down, uh, mm -hmm. just talk through it. It might help get you focused on what you want and then creating a pathway for you to get there that you can monitor. And that really helps, I think, ground people, but they might need that therapist to guide them through that. Yeah. It's not woo-woo to say that like where your mind goes, your body follows. It makes a ton of sense. So why we wouldn't prioritize, you know, getting our head right. I think, I think that, you know, makes a lot of sense. It's just hard, right? It's a lot easier to say, let's just go to the gym and, and work out our, our, you know, stress there, which also is helpful, but sometimes we need more than that, you know? Yeah. And I mentioned uh, meal prepping was huge for compliance. Tracking was huge for compliance. Number three on the list is a coach and a coach can be a therapist mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, of studies that we've done to see what behaviors result in, in the best outcomes, meal prep, tracking coach. And those are the top three at the bottom of the list was uh, your, your doctor and your registered dietitian. <laughs> and my my co-author is a registered dietitian. It's not an indictment. It's just to say that those can be expensive and they probably don't have the frequency needed to keep yeah. you on track. And that's pretty important uh, to have, have that consistency and frequency. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's really important. Okay. So just quickly, before I let you go on with the rest of your day, let's talk yeah. about the work you're doing with John Jones. And also when you are working with, uh, an, cause you worked with Thor before, like some, some yeah. intense and, and he's actually fighting a friend of mine, by the way, the boxing, uh, match that's coming up this weekend, you know, about this, I can't, it's going to be such a epic, ridiculous circus. I think that entire night, but anyway, it's going to be very entertaining. Um, when you work with like someone like John Jones, do you like really kind of embed yourself into their life? Like you're there, you're with him every day. Like, how does that even work? You're not just telling him here, go eat this. You know, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. It depends on what the athletes needs are. Uh, you know, like when I worked with Hofthor, obviously I flew up to Iceland or he would come down to Las Vegas to see me. When I worked with Lane Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles, I, you know, I would fly out to his place and just kind of get them set up at least initially but he has a full-time coach that could kind of help him uh, with maintenance and communicate with me. Uh, I worked with uh, Brian Shaw, of course. Um, I worked with uh, uh, you know, Robert Oberst and Nick Best. Uh, interesting story. My dad was watching that history channel with the Strongmen uh, show that they were doing. And he's like, Hey, Stan, come in here. And I come in and he's like, do you know any of these guys? And I'm like, well, that one, that one, and that one are clients of mine. <laughs> and he's, he looks at me and he's like, Shaking his head, you know, crazy. 
Yeah, so I've, I've had a lot of good opportunity to work with a lot of, of folks, and they're all different. I'll say this. This is one of the things that really surprised me because, and I've, I bet a lot of trainers feel this way. They, they kind of feel as though when you get a great athlete like that, you assume to yourself that they've already got everything covered. Mm. You know, what can I do for this guy? He's, you know, one of the greatest in the world. You know, John Jones, 14-time defending champion. When you get in there and start picking through their program, you realize that some of these people are extremely talented and maybe are succeeding in spite of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I find gaping holes, you know, with both Brian and Hawthorne, neither one of them is wearing a CPAP. And they're both over 400 pounds and storing like freight trains. It's the simple stuff. I go right back to the basics and see what's going on. I get a blood test. I do that with my athletes. And I see things that, that I think could be remedied with low vitamin D in most of them. Uh, the heavier athletes, I do see some metabolic syndrome, of course. Uh, and so I want to try and remedy those things. With the, the big guys, I try and encourage them to lose weight to try and resolve some of those problems. Then we can take them back up using some, uh, some smarter diet and training strategies uh, to prevent that from recurring. I, I experienced that myself. So, of course, I, I know that. Uh, but a lot of it is, is trying to make things easier on them, uh, uh, taking care of things like, uh, like meal prepping, yeah. uh, just making it so they can be more compliant without everything seeming to be such a distraction uh, or time consuming so they can focus more attention on their training. And I got to be honest with you, a lot of what I do is try and discourage them from doing from uh, <clears throat> what term would I use uh, junk volume. Mm. Uh, sometimes they, they just work for the sake of work a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. Everything that I want, I want to make sure everything's measurable and progressible with an athlete. And Stan, then, Stan, can I just interrupt you for one second? I'm so sorry, but my laptop's going to die and I really don't want it to die while you're in the middle of a conversation. Can you, can you give me like another, can we talk for like another 10 minutes or so? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to grab my outlet. Cause yeah, I'm sorry no about worries. that. Hold on. Hold on one second. Sure. All right. Thank God for post-production editing. Okay. Absolutely. All right. You were talking about uh, junk training. Yeah. Junk volume. I, I want to make yeah. sure that, that, and another thing I need to do with, with the athletes, especially somebody like John who has so many different demands. He, he needs speed training. He needs mm -hmm. strength training. Uh, obviously he needs uh, martial arts training. Um, He's got 10 different workouts a week. You know, we'll, we'll do some lower body stuff. We'll do some upper body stuff. He'll do some wrestling. He'll do some kickboxing. Uh, we'll do some speed training, some endurance training. I have to manage fatigue. That's the big thing. And so I have to design the program such that I can get more of the benefits with less of the drawbacks, less delayed onset muscle soreness, uh, and less systemic fatigue. 
Some specific examples of that might be just not loading his spine as much or as heavy, doing more concentric work. And by not loading the spine, I'm, I mean, I would use a, a belt squat instead of a squat, or uh, I would do mostly concentric work. I would have him uh, do the, uh, the concentric portion of a squat out of chains and then just kind of crash it down. So he's not doing the eccentric loading. It just takes away a lot of the muscle damage and the, uh, and the additional fatigue that might impair his wrestling practice or his kickboxing practice. So I'm cautious about that. And I have to be very careful about injury prevention uh, and whether or not he's investing his time into things that actually prevent or help him recover from workouts. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, what therapies that, uh, uh, passive therapies, I'll call them. I did a video where I talked about the fact that things that are done to you or for you are rarely as effective as things you do for yourself. Mm. Uh, we've seen in research over and over again, I talked about most pain resolves itself, uh, within four to six weeks spontaneously without the need of any intervention. Uh, a lot of people think they need to go get massage therapy or physical therapy or massages or, um, things like that to recover from workouts. And that's fine. It has more of a placebo effect, to be honest with you, than anything else. Uh, but at the sacrifice of movements, I'm not going to recommend that. Now, if they want to do that in addition to movement, and so I'll do really low impact things like dragging a sled, um, taking walks. Um, uh, we'll do things like uh, uh, you know, maybe hip swings and uh, just things that uh, just general movement, even just marching on a, on a belt squat, just to get blood, a lot of blood in the area. So uh, I do that a lot. Uh, we think the more you do, the more you can do. And so we keep him moving. Uh, and then if he wants to do some sort of therapy on top of that, well, that's optional, but it's not prefer it's not preferential. So for Jones, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's trying to go up to like heavyweight. He was trying to get bigger and fight at a heavier weight class, right? Yeah. Okay. And so he's, he's quite like, he's a big guy. He's a tall guy. He's got really long limbs. He's got a long reach, but he was never like, maybe some of the challenge might be getting him to a bigger, thicker, stronger size while still, I guess, maintaining the agility and the speed and all that kind of stuff. So stronger and bigger while still having all that other stuff that he had. So what are, can you speak? I mean, I'm sure you can't tell us all the insider like camp secrets, but like, can you speak to what kinds of stuff you'd be doing for him or for anyone else who is trying to maintain what they have at a smaller weight, but get this bigger weight? Cause I feel like a lot of people do struggle with, okay, well, do I want to be like lean and jacked or do I want to be big and strong? I can't do both. You know, you're right. You're yeah. right. You can't do both. Uh, you're right about all of it. When you put weight on an athlete, it takes them a while to adapt, to get their coordination and their agility and their speed uh, up to par. We see this in high school uh, wrestlers when they uh, go through puberty and have growth spurts. They, it takes them many months uh, to reestablish their level of coordination. And once they do, of course, they perform better because they're obviously bigger and stronger. Uh, John competed at 205, you know, walked around at 220. He's been a wrestler since he was, I think, nine years old. And so he's always kind of managed his weight. This is the first time he's really bulked up uh, significantly in the off season. Uh, we have him at two, 260 pounds right now. And we knew that that was going to be our challenge is that was to, to make sure that he maintained speed uh, and explosiveness. And so we measure those things. We'll measure his broad jump. We'll measure, we've got an overspeed treadmill and we'll measure how fast he can run. 
Uh, and so, and his coaches, of course, will, will watch uh, and see if it's having any effect on his ability to do spinning back kicks or things like that. So uh, we're very careful to measure those things. He can get as big as, as, as what I've said is he can get as big and as heavy as he can continue to uh, maintain his explosiveness, his power and his speed. I'm, I'm not concerned with the weight per se. I'm concerned with the performance, uh, the rate of force production, power and speed that's what's going to be important for, for fighting. So you're right. You can't do everything at once. You, you can't serve more than one master. And so we do a couple of things. We periodize the training, which is common. Uh, in the off season, you would do some hypertrophy. And then as the uh, season progressed, you might transfer into some more strength training with a little less hypertrophy volume. Uh, and then as you get closer to the fight time, you're doing more sports-specific skills and more speed skills. But we also have to do what's kind of, kind of called a concurrent model. I think that uh, Louis Simmons at Westside Barbell popularized a conjugate method, which is really was the, the Eastern Bloc's concurrent model. But you don't want to completely uh, disregard any of the other disciplines. You want to all to at least maintain while you gain some. Yeah. So we have to touch every aspect uh, throughout the training program. Uh, we have to touch a little bit of speed. We have to touch a little bit of endurance. We have to touch a little bit of strength but maybe focus on hypertrophy with the vast majority of the training right now, because he's just simply trying to build more muscle on that frame. Mm -hmm. Genetically speaking, he's got an incredible predisposition. Anybody who saw Chandler Jones perform over the weekend with, I think, what do you have five or six sacks at Arizona? Uh, you know, that's, that's John's bloodline and his older brother as well as a Super Bowl champion uh, defensive lineman, I believe. Uh, so you know, John is certainly a very genetically gifted individual. He can, he can do just about anything he wants to do. He's moving very well at 260. Uh, we, we don't know how much heavier he can or will get. And we're not, again, at this point, too concerned. It looks like um, Nagano is going to fight surreal gain in January, and then John would get the winner of those. Uh, and this is all just, you know, based on the current speculation. Um, and that would be four or five months following that. So, uh, he's got uh, time May or June. Yeah. So we're talking about seven to eight months. So we'll spend at least the next three months prioritizing hypertrophy training. So we're in there doing more volume. You mentioned earlier, uh, about, uh, you know, people can grow on a bunch of different rep ranges. You can go in and lift really heavy five rep sets, you can go in and lift a moderate 10 to 12 rep set or a lighter 20 rep set. They get equivalent outcomes in terms of hypertrophy from, from each of those. So long as uh, volume and load is equated, or so long as volume is equated, and as long as they get within a couple reps of failure. So the intensity component is important. And this is just a general hypertrophy lesson, not specific to John. What we find is, is that the people who do the fives get stronger, the people who do the 20s have a little more muscular endurance, but both of those are more fatiguing. And so we'll use less of our total volume in the five or 20 range and more of our total volume in that kind of eight to 15 range. And again, focus on movements that have less lumbar loading uh, and more concentric movements. So, uh, so that we accumulate less fatigue over time and, and still build muscle mass. And we have to do at our minimum of 12 sets a week, per body part, uh, training twice a week, ideally. And so, we're, you know, we're implementing all of the science-based fundamentals, the things that we use in the, the bodybuilding industry right now is essentially what his program is, is, is uh, mostly a focus on bodybuilding, skill work, 
with wrestling and uh, and kickboxing as opposed to really intense, uh, you know, hard wrestling. It's more jujitsu. It's more, you know, wrestling technique as opposed to grinding in there. That'll all be, be introduced probably three months before the actual fight and where we'll, of course, have tapered down his bodybuilding training. Um, and we'll, we'll have already probably done a speed cycle prior to that too, about a six-week uh, intense speed cycle. We're, we're using that overspeed treadmill. It has a lot of benefits systemically in terms of, uh, of creating speed and, and uh, just your, your ability to your nerve signaling to be able to, to be more explosive, uh, in, which is going to be great for fighting, of course. I saw some videos of that. It's funny, you know, talking about the bodybuilding stuff, like, and having been in both the bodybuilding world and the powerlifting world and even CrossFit, I did CrossFit before I did either of those other two things and how like the, the groups like to sort of poke fun at each other and make fun of like, you know, bodybuilders versus powerlifters and stuff. When of course there's so much more similarity than there is difference. And yeah. there's so much that can be gained from bodybuilders. People think on the surface, it's like, you're just doing beach body workouts. You're just doing buys and tries, you know, buys for the, what is it? Curls for the girls, whatever. You just want to look good, but there's so much that you can gain from intelligent bodybuilding um, programming that is going to help your sport, your, your other um, endeavors, you know, if you do it intelligently. And I mean, obviously this is the case for MMA too. Um, do you find it interesting or, or unique working with MMA athletes because they really are, I think, sort of different from other um, athletes in that they have to be masters of a handful of sports. I mean, I'm not saying that one's better or worse than the other, but I mean, if you're training a boxer, they have to be good at boxing. If you're training a sprinter, they have to be good at sprinting, but mixed martial artists, like they need to be good at a ton of different things and have that intelligence or that, um, that endurance as well as the power and the agility and all of those things. Is it, is that like a really unique experience for you or is it not, not as different as we think? Well, you know, I've worked historically with CrossFitters. I worked with Camille LeBlanc and Dave Lipson. I worked with Ben Smith and Becca Voigt. They're all CrossFit national champions. Uh, they have a similar demand. They have lots of different uh, things that they have to be good at. Uh, I think the foundation is the same uh, speed, strength, endurance, uh, and fatigue management becomes important for their ability to do all of those things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really similar uh, and, and periodization because even uh, – you know, CrossFitters, some of them want to gain more muscle uh, and you have to do that strategically um, and then, you know, periodize that into, into like a nine month plan instead of just trying to do everything 60 days before a competition. It, yeah. it's, uh, you can't, you can't do everything at once. Yep. I, I mean, I would love to see a Jones versus Nganu fight, like talk about a physical specimen. That guy is insane. I mean, both and Cyril too. Like they're all just like these massive, huge beasts that are like so athletic. I mean, it'll be incredible. However it goes. Um, but at this point, so are you, you said you're kind of going back and forth, right? Like you're going to Albuquerque, um, to train with him, like on and off. Is it, what's the, yeah, what's the schedule me. like? Okay. So I'll be down here a week and then I'll go home and my partner will come in. Uh, Matt Whitmer from beat training out of Cincinnati was, uh, he was a strength and conditioning coach for the Cleveland Browns and for Pittsburgh. Uh, he worked under the great buddy Morris, who is the current strength and conditioning coach for Arizona. He he's, uh, he's Chandler Jones and strength and conditioning coach. So I, I find, find that to be pretty interesting that, mm. uh, that, uh, that Matt Whitmer's mentor trains Chandler and Matt now trains John. 
and so we alternate weeks. Matt's a specialist in the speed training. He's been doing it for almost 15 years. He competed with and for uh, Louis Simmons at, uh, at, at uh, uh, Westside Barbell for about 15 years. So he has a, a great powerlifting background as well as a speed background. And it's, uh, uh, the teamwork's been great. We, we think that we're giving John everything that he, he can possibly handle. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for the outcome as well. These are all amazing athletes. They're all six, four, seven foot wingspan, 250 plus, you know, Nangano, 265, 170 pounds. Uh, it's exciting. They all have, uh, uh, surreal has more of a skill set like John, whereas Nagano, of course, is, uh, he's just a very explosive, very strong, uh, powerful knockout guy. So, uh, it'll be interesting whatever happens. I obviously yeah. I'm biased. I, I, I like my man. <laughs> I, I think that, that he's going to surprise some people. I, I've said this before. I told John, when I came down here, I'm, I'm like, John, you know, if you win, you always win. And, uh, if you lose, it's my fault. <laughs> There you go. There you go. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he'd be as much of an underdog as people would think. I mean, he was one of the, I mean, in contention for, you know, hall of fame, best MMA fighter of all time. Um, He's He's about the same age as those other two guys. So it's not like, you know, he's past his prime or anything. He's performing exceedingly well. And I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact, as I mentioned, that there's still so much more left in him. I saw all of these, gaps uh, in his nutrition program and his training program. He had, he had a great strength coach and he had a great conditioning coach. And he's obviously with Jackson Lee. He's got the great martial arts coaches as well, but I saw little things that uh, historically, particularly with the weight cut that may have, have uh, fatigued him to the point where he didn't come to the ring with the capacity to, uh, uh, to employ his game plan as well as he may have liked. Probably not quite as strong or quite as fast as he could be. Uh, now, of course, not having to weight cut, that's a, a huge benefit uh, so long as we can maintain his uh, his speed and strength and power. Yeah, that's one of the things I feel like I am seeing a little bit more of in, in MMA is people being willing to kind of move around in weight classes a little bit, which I think it it's more fun for us as, uh, you know, consumers of the sport for entertainment. But it's always kind of sad to see how much stress and work and, and uh, in a lot of cases, unsafe practices people are doing to get like just get them down to that level of that, that lower weight class. And I I'm starting to see, I mean, it's still very much a pervasive thing in the sport, of course. And I understand why, but I am starting to see people kind of play around a little bit more and being like, it's just the relief and the, the, um, the health and the performance that I feel from not having to kill myself to get down to that weight class. Like you saw like, um, GSP, my favorite fighter, of course, being a Canadian, he's my favorite come back after four years of retirement, go up a weight class to fight Bisping, who again, I know is older. We're going down a rabbit hole here, but people being just willing to, and I think it was even like some of the catch weights with the women's fighters, right? Because the women's sport being relatively newer, there aren't as many weight classes. And so a lot of these women who, you know, had to really, really fight to get down to a weight class just to be able to fight now finding these sort of like middle ground and, and, and catch uh, weights that, that allow them to fight it closer to their natural weight. It's fun to see because you don't like seeing people have to almost die to get to a weight class where they're going to fight. Right. I agree. Yeah. I always hated that, particularly for teenagers, the weight cut, I felt, uh, you know, kind of inhibited their growth. And that was always challenging for me. And I would say the same thing about track athletes and Mm -hmm. and, uh, female track athletes in particular in high school distance runners. I, th- I think it's uh, is um, it's got some poor health problems as a result. 
Yeah, that's a whole other uh, rabbit hole we could go down. And I, again, like I said, I could keep you here talking all day uh, if I had my way. But and Andy Galpin, as you who you mentioned before, I did a podcast with him and he speaks at length about because he works with fighters all the time, getting them to their their fighting weight. But the hydration aspect and that's the good thing about, you know, technology and all the intelligent people like you we have working with athletes now is we're able to kind of find better systems so that people can really thrive instead of just like barely make it to their weight class and then hope for the best in the ring. You know, people are really kind of killing it now, which is very exciting to see. But um, I agree. Right. You know, I've done weight cuts for probably every world record holder in every weight class in powerlifting for the last 10 years. And I hate doing it I, up right up front. I tell them, look, I'd rather you didn't cut the weight. Yeah. Uh, Matter of fact, I told this is a story I've told many times before. Larry Wheels, who's who's the all-time world record holder in 242 and 275, he was uh, he wanted to do a weight cut to get down to 242, and he reached out to me, and I said, "Look, I said, why are you still trying to be the world's tallest midget? Why don't you come up to a real man's weight class and chase a real world record?" So he went up to 275 and beat that my <laughs> A little bit of you know, a little bit of tough love there sometimes will get people. Oh, yeah, them out is what I should have done, but. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's always challenging those weight cuts and they don't always go well. Some people, uh, don't, uh, rehydrate well enough and end up weaker. Uh, so I always like when people try and go up a weight class because I just see that the best that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, Stan, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, I could keep you forever, but maybe I'll just have to have you on again and we can kind of talk more specifically about any one of these topics that we covered, but, um, thank you for writing this book and, and putting it out and putting out, you know, evidence-based research, experience-based information that is just nuanced, right? Because there's enough, like you said, there's enough out there on social media that's just like, follow my PDF and you'll lose 50 pounds in a week and no people don't really care. And so to have somebody like you who you can tell cares about people, like you said, you answer people's DMs, you've done this for decades, like you, you care about people getting what they want and being healthy and happy in the process. So thank you for doing what you do. It, it means a lot. Yeah, thank you. And and good luck with uh, with your new book coming out. Yep, yeah, yeah. Carn- Carnivore-ish. I actually just uh, announced it the other day. It's, um, you know, like you said, you you. I'm going to use a clip from this podcast where you said women need to eat more protein and we need to get the, that animal protein in because it's amazing to me that at this point in, in history, that's a controversial thing to say is that women need to eat more red meat. It, it blows my mind, but I've seen what it can do and I've seen what it can do when people um, don't do it. Right. So I think it's important, um, that we, uh, that women eat steaks and lift weights. So that's what, that's what I'm talking about. That's my mission. (laughs) Thanks for having me. The opportunity to keep fighting the good fight. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Take care. that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, thoughts, feelings, whatever you want to share with me, please do that. Reach out to me on Instagram at the muscle maven. You can send me an email through my website, ashleyvanhouten.com, and you can get access to all of the cool stuff that I'm doing on my website as well. Thank you again to our show sponsor, Paleo Valley. They make my favorite snacks because I'm a snacker and I'm unapologetic about it. They make 100% grass-fed fermented beef sticks. They make these superfood bars that are based in cashew butter and some nuts, but they've also got a bunch of like superfoods that I would never eat otherwise. Let's be real, greens, powders, and stuff like that that you don't taste. Um, They have a pumpkin spice one in case you're 
into that, but they also have a bunch of other tasty flavors. So check them out. Go to paleovalley.com and use the code MMR, as in Muscle Maven Radio, to save 15% on anything you buy. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you.